Welcome to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg, editor of the Herald Times in Bloomington, along with co-host Mary Catherine Carmichael. And we have uh, one guest with us today. We're welcoming back Michael McRobbie, who's the interim provost at Indiana University Bloomington. If you have questions or comments, please phone us at 855-0811 or 877-285-9348 or send your email to noon at indiana.edu. Michael, welcome back. Delighted to be here. Thank, thank you, you for coming back. You've been a very busy person. And, well, it's uh, been a very busy time since I last spoke to you. <laughs> yes. That's right. Mary Catherine, welcome. Hi, Bob. Um, it has been a busy time. We have a, I have a whole list of things I want to touch on with you. But since um, the timing is perfect to have you here with the start of school, it's getting very crowded out there in Bloomington. Uh, what kind of um, issues, concerns – um, what, are the, what are the biggest things happening this week as, as the students make their uh, trek back into town? Well, uh, it's clear we're going to have a very large class. We uh, won't know exactly uh, how large the class is for another couple of weeks. The figures keep fluctuating mm-hmm. up and down and we'll do so over the next few weeks. But it's, it's clear that it's going to be really quite large. Obviously, one of our concerns is, is the fact that um, uh, there are a number of students who don't uh, have uh, proper accommodation yet and our goal is to try to get them into proper accommodation as, as quickly as possible. Um, it's a, it's a, a difficult time for everybody simply because of the amount of congestion that's, that's around us as uh, tens of thousands of students and uh, tens of thousands of their parents and, um, and, and others arrive to, um, to see them safely into their rooms. And uh, so, so it, is a, it is a very... Uh, it is a, um, a very busy time. Um, we many of us have constant uh, speaking engagements. We're, we're welcoming various groups. That's that's always marvellous to see mm-hmm. uh, bright, uh, young, energetic students back back on campus. I know the deans seem to be going almost non-stop from one speaking engagement to another with uh, with students. I've done quite a few myself, and um, been very impressed with the quality of some of the students that. We've recruited, especially in areas like the uh, Hoosier Presidential Scholars, and last night I met with the the first group of the research scholars that or research students that uh, we've we've been able to um, get, and they uh, there are a number of students who are going to be working on, on their undergraduates working on faculty um, based research projects um, as well, and uh, they, they get a special scholarship to enable them to do that. Mm-hmm. Well, I know that uh, you know each year class size fluctuates, but from everything I've heard, this could very well be, you know, one of the largest freshman classes ever. I mean, is there anything uh, to which you can attribute that? I mean, what, is there just more interest in Indiana University? Is this a larger demographic of students? We 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 have to. Uh, once we get the final figure, we really need to analyze it to try to find out why. I think it's. I think in part um, we've tried to improve uh, the amount of financial aid that we provide for. Uh, needs-based aid and um, and other things. I think there's been an improvement in in our marketing, though I think we're far from where I'd really like us to be. We, um, I think, as you know, we've recently uh, employed a, a new vice provost for enrolment management, um, and uh, Roger Thompson, who came from uh, background, um, very successful background in, in, in improving uh, quality and what have you of classes elsewhere, and I think Roger will have will have an impact on that uh, as well. Mm-hmm. Okay, 855-0811-877-285-9348 in noon at indiana.edu. Michael McRobbie is our guest today. You know, before we get into the nitty-gritty, we had a nice email that came okay. in that I'd like to go ahead and get to if that's all right. Sure. Um, it begins, I told my two older children as they began college that it would be a good idea to sit in the front. That way they would get more out of it and be sure to participate. Do you have any other words of wisdom for students beginning college? Very timely question. Um, make sure you get up early in the morning and go to all your classes. <laughs> I, I said I said that in my speech at, at, at freshman induction and uh, – <laughs> um, those of us who have been students know that there are there, that there are penalties, if not immediate, uh, then longer term for not going to all the, all your classes or as many of your classes as you, as you can. So, if you were to give them one piece of advice, it would be that. Okay. All right. I, I wish you told me that before I went to school. <laughs> yeah. I don't wish someone I, had told me. <laughs> I had that little guilty feeling all over again. Yeah. That was bad. <laughs> um, there are a lot of things that I want to talk about today, but one of the one of the things that I want you to um, to tell us about is your trip to Asia because this summer you. You went to Asia, made a lot of connections for Indiana University. Um, what was uh, what was that all about? 
Well, I think where, where, where that starts from is um, a realisation that I think uh, most people have that that these days as, as part of an education, as part of an excellent education in a, in a top research institution like, like Indiana University, um, you, you really need to have some kind of, a, of an international or, or global component. Uh, th- that is, uh, whether it's a period of study abroad, a period of intensive language study, um, even a short visit abroad, um, a longer period abroad, uh, that the uh, the world is 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 simply becoming more global, more international. Um, I, I think in any area of business, that those pressures are going to be uh, are going to be very very substantial and very uh, very uh, noticeable in everything that that you do. I think that's true of many other professions, if not all professions. To greater or lesser degree, the global international context will affect um, all those professions, and I think it affects um, mo- most other areas of education. So, so really. Uh, uh, giving students that international experience, that international global context, I think is 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 going to become more and more important for us to do. Now, at the moment, about um, probably around a quarter of our students on on an annual basis get some kind of a of um, an, an international experience. So we we are about at a quarter of what we'd want if we wanted every student or nearly every student to have that kind of experience. So the question then arises, you know, with with whom should we be trying to establish new relationships, and uh, um, and then then the other side of the, the coin is, um, who are the countries from from whom we get most of our international students? Who are the main countries that are sending inter- international students to IU? And it's interesting when you look at the figures, um, two thirds of all our international students come from just five countries: China, if you include Hong Kong and China, Taiwan, Korea, Japan, and India. Two thirds of our students, you include the rest of Asia, it's it's over three quarters, uh, come from just that part of the world. So, to me, um, it's I think really important that we uh, expand and build upon the sorts of relationships we have with the key universities in those countries. So, I visited China uh, specifically to put in place uh, agreements with a, with a number of universities, in particular Tsinghua University, which is their top university. But we also visited um, the four other top universities in China, uh, another university, Peking University in Beijing, and we visited Jiao uh, Tong University and Fudan University in Shanghai, which are the two top universities there, and then um, Zhejiang University in the city of Hangzhou, which is the number three ranked university in China. So there are the, those are the top five universities. And we have, we, have agree- we have agreements. One was just announced yesterday with the law school with Fudan, that was finalised in part when we were there. And um, that now gives us four agreements with the top five universities um, in China. Um, so our goal is is to use that both as, as a, a method of attracting their, their best students to come to IU and also as a way of trying to build relationships with faculty there and also to provide... Um, if you like, sort of launching pads for us to expand study abroad in that part of the world. As you know, I mean, those five countries I mentioned are among the fastest growing. Um, I mean, Japan's a more stable, a more mature economy, but the others are the, the four of the most fastest growing economies in the world. So what's included in the agreements? Just the exchange uh, or...? The, the, way, the way we tend to work is to put in place a, a more general agreement uh, f- that allows for exchanges and, and so on, and then to then to drill down and have imp- what we call implementation plans depending on, on the, the agreement. So we have a general agreement with Fadan University, the one that was announced yesterday, mm-hmm. and then the specific uh, project or the first of well, maybe a number of projects will be between their law school and our law school to exchange students, mm-hmm. faculty, and various lectures and so on that are going to go on between them. That was all set out in a news release yesterday. And then the agreement with Tsinghua University is specifically focused on work that's actually been going on for some years in, in the development of internet technologies for these high-performance research networks that we're engaged in. And they also are the equivalent... Tsinghua um, University is the equivalent of IU in China in terms of the role that they play mm-hmm. with uh, with networking in China. So it's a natural partnership and we've sought to build on that. But there are other opportunities there too. I'm looking next year to um, hopefully uh, take a, a party of the deans from uh, from the university 
to to China um, to visit a number of these universities so we can look on how to build even further on on the start that we've got and, and some of the previous work that goes back many years. So not being able to get the other three-quarters of our students there, you're going to bring part of that experience here to them? Well, um, the, I think you have, you have to look at these things, uh, the connections between them. I mean, the relationships enable you to both uh, establish study abroad programs with them and then uh, use that to, to attract their students, uh, their very best students, uh, to, to come to IU um, as well. And, and I think it's when you can have that sort of two-way relationship that, the, that these relationships are most effective between institutions. I think you know that the, the Chinese government has a plan, a very ambitious plan, to have 10 of their universities in the top 50 in the world in the next 10 years. Now, um, I think it's questionable whether they'll actually get there, but they're certainly going to try and they'll probably, they'll probably advance the standing of those places um, way beyond where they are now. Mm-hmm. I mean, we saw a remarkable investment. We saw a campus in, in Zhejiang University as big as the whole of Bloomington and IPOI put together that, that they built in less than a couple of years wow. um, simply because of the massive expansion of the university system that's going on there. And, of course, they're attracting yeah. back to China um, some of their very best um, uh, faculty who have been trained in the U.S. Mm-hmm. I, I just wanted to clarify because uh, the number I think is uh, pretty astounding. You said one quarter of all IU students now get some sort of experience. Is that in no, travel what, abroad? Per, per, per year um, – let me see. Per year, we send about two thousand students abroad, okay. slightly over two thousand students abroad. So, so if you think if you think of um, each class as being about eight hundred, eight thousand or so, so roughly each year about a quarter of each class. Um, sorry, about, a, about a, what would be a what would be a quarter of each class goes overseas. Okay. All right. All right. Eight five five zero eight one one eight seven seven two eight five nine three four eight and noon at indiana.edu. This week you uh, unveiled Big Red, the fastest university supercomputer in the U.S. Um, For a layman like me and maybe a laywoman like (laughs) Mary Catherine. (laughs) Certainly. um, You know, can you explain to us, you know, the importance of this? Put this in context for us, having um, this kind of a supercomputer here on campus. Well, the importance of supercomputing is is that it allows researchers to carry out computations that are thousands of times faster than what you can do with a PC. If that supercomputer only gives you a modest improvement over what you can do with a PC or a workstation, there's no point having it. It's only when you really have that thousand-fold increase over over a PC that you can start doing work in minutes that would take you days on the PC. And it's that, it's that speed up that, gives, that really then gives you a sort of a competitive advantage um, for, for your researchers who need that level of speed. And, and there, are, there, are, there are problems in pretty much every area of science and research that require either, either speed like that or vast amounts of storage or a combination of the two where you, where you can both compute store vast amounts of data, analyze it, compute it again, and so on. Mm-hmm. And our goal was to, was to put in place an environment um, that would provide both that, um, th- that computational speed but also provide uh, the ability to store massive amounts of data well beyond anything we've ever been able to do before and well beyond anything that any other institution is able to do at, at the moment. And, and the importance of that is that there are areas of science where the data isn't replicable. And, mm-hmm. and, and so if you think about someone doing a simulation of a formation of a star or something, um, if that goes wrong, you start it again and, or if you lose the data, you start it again and you get it back. But say you take um, data about uh, the, 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 the proteins in someone's blood. I mean, that, that data um, is that snapshot of, of the levels and amounts and so on of proteins at any one time is unique. It's going to change from day to day, from minute to minute almost. So there are certain kinds of data which, which you can't uh, replicate and which you want to be able to store for a very long time. And so our goal was to put in place an infrastructure that will enable our researchers and scientists to store data not just for years but for, for decades and beyond that. And as one of the one faculty member once said that he wanted to be able to store data not just for his graduate students but for his graduate students' graduate students. And I thought that put it rather beautifully, mm-hmm, actually. Mm-hmm. So, uh, uh, again, I'll just – I've got my layman cap sure. on here. Um, who has access 
to the supercomputer? All it, of faculty or is it a very specialized group? It's, it, basically, it's, it's open to any researcher who's got an appropriate project um, that requires um, facilities of this kind or capabilities of this kind. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we run a fairly open environment for, for high-performance computing here, for supercomputing. I, I think that, um, uh, that to artificially restrict that is is to deny innovation. You, you 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 don't want to cut yourself off from the person in in some department who's never used this kind of technology, and all of a sudden comes up with a terrific application that uh, um, that needs vast amounts of power. So I like to be able to keep keep these this, keep keep this as open as possible. Is this the kind of technology that that you share with other universities? Yeah, it's uh, it's a little bit technical, but but there's there's a um, sort of national network that the National Science Foundation runs called the Terra Grid, which, which you can think of by analogy with the power grid. And there's about, um, about a dozen universities around the United States uh, who, who have all got resources plugged into the Terra Grid. And so scientists who get access to the Terra Grid can get access to some of those resources for whatever their problem is. And it's sort of like if you've got a, if you've got a problem, then you just dial up the amount of computation you need. It puts it very simply, but that's the analogy with the power grid. And so Big Red is going to be on the Terra grid um, and some of its resources are going to be contributed to the Terra grid because we, we were funded by the National Science Foundation. We get uh, quite a few million dollars of funding from the National Science Foundation to be part of that, that particular project. What was the total cost for the Big Red? Uh, well, there's, there's, um, there's a whole lot of components. There's the computational engines, the storage it's a whole lot of networking. That, that all of it together was about nine million, of which, in the bulk of that money, came from the Lilly Endowment, to whom we are uh, just continually grateful for all they do for us and for the state, mm-hmm. and uh, the National Science Foundation. Fascinating. All right, Michael McRobbie is here with us, the uh, interim provost at Indiana University Bloomington. If you have questions or comments, please phone us at eight five five zero eight one one or 877-285-9348, or send your email to noon at indiana.edu. Governor Daniels visited the uh, area this week and talked to some students at Bloomington North. We we covered it in our paper. Um, And I interviewed him not too long ago. He doesn't say bad things about Indiana University. Um, (laughs) Is his daughter still here? I would think think not. (laughs) But he really (laughs) says a lot of good things about Purdue, and he talks about how he thinks Purdue is ahead of IU when it comes to um, some of the, uh, I guess, needs of the of the state of Indiana. And I just want to give you an opportunity to, to comment on that. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I think Purdue has done a great job with, with um, the way in which they've marketed their capabilities and the way in which they've developed um, Discovery Park. I, I think it's a credit to the university and a credit to the state what, they, what they've done there. But, but I think um, the, the governor really hit on um, two major areas where IU um, has contributed and I think is going to contribute even more to issues of economic development and um, the, the, the education of students in the state in critical areas. And one was the life sciences. Um, he, the governor is, um, knows, um, I've spoken to him about it, uh, about our life sciences strategic plan and he's been extremely complimentary of it. And, and that plan is going to form the basis of the request that we will make to the legislature for um, a significant amount of funding in the next, a very large amount of funding in the next budget uh, to uh, to um, basically help us implement that plan to 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 increase by hundreds the number of faculty in the life sciences in the university. So um, I think that plan is going to is going to form the the basis of uh, combined with the expertise we already have, the excellence in the life sciences on this campus and at IPUI for a, a major thrust in the life sciences um, at IU that, uh, that will hopefully rival some of the, some of the most um, significant activities in this area and other states. That's the first thing. And the second thing was, and I think the governor was exactly right to highlight this, he, he highlighted um, the, uh, our expertise in area studies, international studies and so on. I think, as, as you know, we were funded... Uh, for um, uh, eight area uh, uh, title six um, area studies uh, projects, um, if you combine this with with the additional centre at IPUI in Indonesia, that gives us nine, which is the equal highest of any university in in the country. So, so that was, I think, um, a wonderful piece of independent testimony to the quality of of um, 
our research and and our scholarly activities in the languages and uh, the cultures of other country and and that then harkens back to what I said before about just how vital the global international component is uh, in the university and and clearly uh, the contribution we're going to make there through the area study centres. Remember that brought twenty million dollars into the state for those for those centres and that twenty million dollars that's um, getting comparable to what uh, people in the in the physical sciences bring in. So it's a, it was a it was a superb achievement by. All the faculty involved in that. Now, I wish you luck with the legislature. Yeah, it's a big, it's a big request. I, and, and I guess in a more serious follow-up, I mean, how do how do you? Um, I mean, I think life sciences is something that perhaps our legislature has its arms wrapped around. But how do you um, how do you sort of transfer the importance of these area studies um, components to you know a state legislature in Indiana that is. Uh, I, I would say a lot of their constituents are just are mainly interested in having their their son or daughter educated at the state university. You know how how do you sort of um, translate that importance of being such a global player? Oh, I think it's very I think it's very simple. I think I think that the the, the point you simply make is that y- you want to be able to give their son or daughter, and you want to give the children of Southern Indiana the best possible education and the best possible education is an education that has a significant global international component. Without that component, if you have a sort of an isolationist blinkered view of the world, you're not going to do very well in the world as it stands today. Mm-hmm. So that's why I think um, those those uh, centres and the departments they're based on and so on all contribute to our ability to... to uh, give a, a superb education in, in those areas, um, as, as good as probably anywhere in the country, just because of the sheer breadth of what we do on this campus. Do you feel that there's an education process that needs to be put in place in order to make that point um, with the citizens? Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I think um, that uh, that there's there, there, there probably is a lot more that we could be doing there, and I think you'll probably see us doing a lot more in the next year um, in, in that regard to... to to raise the profile of, of these these areas and and the importance of these areas and, and in part that's what we tried to do through the the, the trip to China was mm-hmm. to was to make a, a a real point about why these these things are important and and, and also I mean the, the agreement that was announced yesterday and uh, then the new dean of the graduate school uh, who I just uh, appointed he's he's off to China in a, in a couple of months as as well and. Um, uh, Dan Smith, the dean of the Kelly School, is off to India, I think, in October as well. And so, there's, so, so all the deans understand this, and you're going to start to see all of them start to raise the profile of the importance of that component of what we do. It seems that you've got to do this if you're going to have any chance of success, hand in hand with government, um, state government, uh, both the governor's office and the legislature. How's what's your take on the relationship there, um, as it stands, and and maybe uh, projecting a little bit into the future. You mean between the university and the? Oh, I think it's uh, the relationship's very good. I mean, um, we all interact with the governor and his staff in various ways and on a pretty regular basis. Um, so you feel a strong level of support from the governor? Oh office? yeah, I mean, I, I mean, the governor, the governor is a, is a great internationalist. That's one of the I think really impressive things about the state is that it, uh, um, for a Midwest state, it has a disproportionately high number of outstanding um, sort of internationalist. I mean, you think of Senator Luger, you think of um, Lee Hamilton, mm-hmm. and I certainly think Governor Daniels shares, um, shares the, their kinds of views about the importance of the, of the international uh, context. All right. We've hit uh, halftime, as it were. So I, I want to remind you that Michael McRobbie, if you don't recognize his voice, Michael McRobbie, uh, interim provost at Indiana University Bloomington, is our guest today. If you have questions or comments... Please phone us at 855-0811 or 877-285-9348. Or you can send your email to noon at indiana.edu. You're listening to Noon Edition. We'll be right back. You're listening to Noon Edition on member-supported WFIU. Production support comes from Closets 2, providing organized and expanded closet and storage space for home office and garage, using a variety of systems with no major renovations. Closets 2 owned and operated in Bloomington, 332-2233. And from South Dunn Street Project, represented by Brian Lappin Real Estate, classic bungalow-inspired architecture in the Bryan Park neighborhood of Bloomington, www.southdunnstreet.com. 
www.monroe.info. WFIU is a media sponsor of the Monroe County United Ministries annual food drive. Volunteers will be at many of the Bloomington and Ellettsville area grocery stores, distributing information on the growing demand for food assistance in our community and collecting donations made by shoppers. Monroe County United Ministries annual food drive takes place on Saturday, August 26th and Sunday, August 27th from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. More information available at wfiu.indiana.edu. Welcome back to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Salzberg from the Herald Times along with Mary Catherine Carmichael. And Michael McRobbie is here, Interim Provost at Indiana University Bloomington. If you have questions or comments, please phone us at 855-0811 or 877-285-9348 or send your email to noon at indiana.edu. Small question. You're still going by Interim Provost. Is that – are you going to be Interim Provost until a new president comes on board or how – what's the story? Yes. I mean I, I assume that a new president will want to make um, – decisions about uh, uh, interim positions and so on, what, what he or she wants to do about them. Thanks. <laughs> All right. But back to, back to that same topic. I mean, this is a fairly new position. I mean, you've been in the job now for six months, roughly? Uh, eight months, I think. Eight months. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Since January, I mm-hmm. guess. Um, how has it evolved? How's the job evolved? Because it was uh, a job that IU did not have previously, and there are different sort of Divisions of labor. Um, have, have there been any surprises? Been any, what, what, what have been the biggest challenges? Well, it's a it's a it's a very large job. Um, I I enjoyed every single minute of it. It's it's just been uh, just marvelous. Um, obviously, there was a, a lot that um, that I needed to get on top of, and and uh, a lot that needed attention. Normally, when you take on a new job, you you um, have three or four months before you take it up. I think I was given two weeks, um, and and then I was already doing the job. So to some extent, uh, so and and obviously following as I did in a sense, Ken Gross Lewis is a very very hard act to follow. Um, but uh, but I think I think basically uh, trying to uh, move the university forward in a, in a number of areas um, uh, that it may be stalled for a whole variety of reasons, though particular fault of anybody's um, was something that I've been putting a lot of effort into. There's a series of um, searches that we've got underway. Uh, a couple have been been finished and I hope to finish some more before too much longer. Um, starting to take a really serious look at the space question, um, which I think I'm actually able to hopefully have more, more effect on here than my previous portfolio where you can only do so much in the research portfolio. And that's going to be something that um, I'm hoping we're going to be able to have a have some some fairly significant developments over the over the rest of this uh, year calendar year. Um, obviously, starting to look at how how we make this a more selective institution in accord with what the trustees have directed, what we need to do to to bring that about. Um, there's the general education curriculum that, uh, that again the trustees want to see in place. Uh, there's preparing uh, for the state legislative budget cycle coming up, and uh, all the work that that's involved with the li- with the life sciences and so on. And clearly, there's been, um, I think, giving a lot of attention to the international area. That's an area where we probably haven't given as much attention mm-hmm. to that probably since uh, since maybe even John Ryan. And no, I think it's no comment. I mean, I think all the previous presidents had a lot of interest in it, but but it's just, I mean, um, uh, but I think um, at the moment. Uh, it's it's an area that I've been asked to take responsibility for for developing a strategic plan, and one of my goals is to really boost the uh, boost the, um, the 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 standing and visibility of the international area. Um, I, I think it, it was fairly well um, established when you were placed in this position that the the trustees wanted. I think Steve Ferguson talked about how it's no longer business as usual. They wanted things to move forward quickly. Um, you were seen and are seen as a man of, of action. Uh, how? Uh, what are some of the things that you think have happened in the last eight months that would, would sort of, uh, I guess, fulfill what the trustees wanted in terms of, of moving something forward fairly quickly? Well, we've been able to fill a couple of um, of uh, t- two major senior positions that I think are going to be very important to us, especially in terms of re- recruitment. 
Uh, one was the uh, the dean of the graduate school, James Wimbush, whose appointment we announced uh, just last week, and um, who uh, uh, James was the chair of the Department of Management in in the Kelly School. And um, again, if we're to improve as an institution in um, as a research institution in research, uh, we need to be improving the uh, the environment for our graduate students. Um, there are studies that show that a third of all research done is done, uh, done by the graduate students. So one has to one has to view the graduate students as a very important component of the research enterprise. So, so we we we've uh, had a, a certain amount of instability in that position. We had a, a very good dean who was only there a brief period of time, and he left again. And uh, so we're hoping that James can can both bring stability to that portfolio and move it forward. And then then as I said before the appointment of Roger Thompson as the Vice Provost for Enrolment Management uh, to really start moving us forward and improving the selectivity quality of the student body as well. Um, I think uh, that's that's certainly one area. Uh, clearly, a lot of the work we've put into the life sciences, um, uh, getting, getting uh, a, a number of those um, initiatives, the planning finished, that underway, and then the the rest of that moving, um, just just the, the the budget cycle um, itself is a major effort uh, for all the schools. Uh, getting that underway, I think making maybe a few changes there in terms of the way we we um, order priorities and uh, and how we how we focus there. Uh, and and as I said, um, have have been putting a lot of work into um, some space issues. Um, Simon Hall's getting close to completion and we were able to, after quite some time, we were able to get the neurosciences building um, uh, approved by the trustees and uh, construction should be starting on that, I think, within about six months. It's actually called the Multidisciplinary Science Building 2, but it's going to be primarily for the neurosciences. Where's the location? Uh, it's it's going to be where the services building is, which is behind psychology, a rather terrible old building that as soon as the people in it are moved to a new building being built way out to tent in the bypass, uh, once that's uh, once that building is finished and they're moved in there, it'll be demolished and the new neurosciences building will be built there and it'll be connected to psychology in various ways as well. I, and I think that what's what's so exciting about that is is that that, that points to um, uh, a real expansion of our activities in the neurosciences, which, which beautifully aligns what we're doing here with the expansion of the neurosciences at the medical school as well. So, so this, is, this is starting to emerge as a significant strength of this university as a whole. All right, 855-0811-877-285-9348 and noon at indiana.edu. And we have our first caller of the day. Don, go ahead. Yes, um, I guess I was really, I've been really pleased listening to um, our interim provost. I thought it was a breath of fresh air. Uh, from what I've been seeing over the last uh, few years of administrators from the university. And I guess my comment, though, is more directed at the Herald Times, which uh, in its policies has, one would get the general impression reading your paper that the only function that the university provides is athletics. And you seem more concerned about winning football and basketball programs than the real product, uh, the real issue of why we have universities in the first place, and that is uh, to teach and to gain new knowledge. And I hope that uh, your editorials in the future uh, will more support the university's true goals versus worrying about having a winning football program and uh, the amount of paper space that's been spent on that issue, to me, is very uh, maybe one of the reasons why a lot of the public have the impression that Indiana University's goals are strictly athletic. Yeah, thanks, Don. Um, Obviously, I disagree with the premise, and uh, that's all I'm going to say because Michael's our guest today. I I would toss the question to you. I thought you you wanted to see if I should ask you some questions. (laughs) Let's get back to our experience. I I, I should just say, I I think that um, uh, the HD, I think you've done a very good job in covering many of our initiatives, um, actually uh, academic initiatives. And uh, I think you've um, uh, you've, you've been quite quite focused on on some of those. And I think the coverage has been very, uh, very good. Well, you know, I, I guess I would say athletics are a, a major part of the university, but I think that the the charge that we ignore the academic side of things is 
unfounded. Okay. So. Let's get back to um, expansion. For people who live here in Bloomington, I think this is a, a particularly interesting question. We're, we're always interested to see and, and hear about the plans for the university. I know the university has an interest in much of the land along the bypass, and I'm wondering what the uh, expansion plans out that direction may be. Um, we're, we're actually looking at uh, possibilities for that at the moment, but no decisions have been have been made. That, that's been... That's been a bit – frankly, that's been a bit of an on-again, off-again area for us. Personally, I think it has it has great potential. The one downside to it is is that it is um, – it, it, at least it appears to be a fair way from the centre of the campus. It's actually not that it's far. Really it's not, less yeah. than two miles. Um, you, you know, you could walk it in, um, you know, 45 minutes or something, if not less. A um, lot less probably. Uh, and um, – but so, so I think the question really is: is how how could that be developed in a way um, in the future uh, that um, that is to some extent self-contained and self-supporting? I mean, you can't put a major academic building out mm-hmm. there, for example. Um, and and there is plenty. I mean, there is space to the north of the campus to to build out uh, academic buildings. Um, as well, but 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 nevertheless, it is a it is an easily accessible sort of fairly high high profile space. We we own a lot of land out there. Um, how might we use that uh, in, in a more beneficial way? And we've cert- we certainly have been having those discussions, and we, there may be some something we can uh, talk more about there in the next few months. So, what can we look forward to seeing uh, in the near future? Um, well, uh, I've indicated a number of a number of the. Developments that, that that are underway, but I think we need to. There hasn't been um, until until we started on Simon Hall. There hasn't been um, any major building here for um, about twenty years. I think the education building was the last mm-hmm. major building building built. If you don't count the extension to the Kelly School, we have a, a number of smaller uh, projects underway. The new Hutton Honors College is is underway. They just started the demolition to to build that. As a small, um, a smallish classroom building uh, going up uh, again to be focusing on the life sciences and, and some other smaller projects going on. I think we're looking at the moment as at, at how we um, might be able to uh, um, address some of the space issues within the university, and, and with, things aren't quite finalised there yet. We need to do some more, some more work and all that. But I think we're hoping to to be able to make um, uh, to be able to make some significant progress this year. In that era. All right. 855-0811-877-285-9348 and noon at indiana.edu. I had the opportunity to listen to Neil Theobald Neil speak this week. Um, and he's one, uh, one of our finest administrators. Yes. He's a, uh, what is his title? He's a vice president. He's for, senior vice provost for uh, financial affairs. Okay. Yeah. And he, he talked a lot about the, the budget. And there were a lot of things in that uh, presentation that I thought would be interesting to get mm-hmm. your your take on. One of, one of the things that he talked about was uh, sort of the, the uh, competition for high-ranking faculty. And the numbers that he used were, were very interesting to me. He said that I, th- I think that it was two or three years ago that in the spring there would be 15 to 18 faculty members that would come forward and say, I have an offer, an outside offer from another university, and I, you would either you know, match it, not match it, whatever. Um, last spring, that number grew to 80. And clearly, you know, the competition for IU's uh, top faculty um, and I guess up-and-coming faculty is, is getting increasingly um, intense. How does the university go about trying to address that issue? Well, let me make a couple of comments about that first, Bob. Um, what that reflects is really two things. Firstly, it reflects the fact that um, the the, the the research universities in this country are highly competitive, and and states are starting to realize more and more that that what really matters is the intellectual capital you have in your research universities, and that becomes a marketplace. and it And it's true for pretty much any discipline. Obviously, some disciplines are more competitive than others, but it's still true for pretty much any discipline um, that that people are prepared to pay very high salaries for the very best intellectual talent. And um, as as those pressures are rising, as people realise just how vital universities are in the in the economy of a state, 
and 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 by that I mean it's it's more than just the startup companies and things like that. It's it's the the quality of education of the students who then go out and contribute to the to that to the economy of that state in all sorts of ways as workers in the industry and and uh, businesses and so on. Um, the value of that intellectual talent becomes greater and greater. That's why that's why in, in turn you're seeing this become more of a global marketplace. Why? why we compete more and more internationally for the very best talent from, from all over the world. Um, so that so that's one pressure that we're under. The second is that um, because of the fairly difficult economic circumstances in the state, uh, the, fee, the, the size of um, uh, the salary increases we've been able to give um, over the last couple of years has been fairly low. And uh, I think that has, that has an impact on people. It uh, causes people to... Uh, uh, to to uh, maybe think about outside offers when they may not, and uh, it also causes some uh, some universities to raid other universities in in places where uh, where they know that the, the, there's been a downturn in the economy. We do the same thing. I mean, there's no there's no secret to that. Um, so so you're seeing those pressures. Um, I, I think it's the the issue of faculty salaries really is going to need I think some serious attention by us over the next couple of years. And in particular, to, to retain our, our very best and most talented faculty. Mm-hmm. There, are, there are a couple other things that uh, that he mentioned. One, and uh, I, I want to know, you know, what you see in terms of a long term, the long term trend of higher uh, reliance on student fees. And the numbers that that he gave were very interesting to me. He said that five years ago, um, for every dollar that IU took in and student fees to, to spend uh, for revenues, it got 78 cents of state money. And now that figure, the 78 cents has dropped to 51 cents compared to every dollar of uh, money that comes from, from student fees. That, that's a trend that I would think uh, couldn't continue for very long. Well, I, I think uh, I, I see that trend probably continuing. Uh, it's not going to. It's not going to be uh, a steep um, uh, decline, but I think it'll continue to decline slowly. Um, it, it, and this has been the phenomenon everywhere else in the country. I, I don't think there's anywhere where there's been a significant increase in the, the state uh, funding for for any publicly funded institution with respect to tuition. There, um, what you will see, of course, is you'll see special initiatives get potentially get anyway large amounts of state money. Since I've been here, information technology got a um, significant amount of money from, from the state for a period of time, um, both for uh, infrastructure um, initiatives and then also for the School of Informatics. We're going to be trying to do the same thing in the life sciences. But in, but in terms of in, significant increase in general funds, I think that's probably unlikely to um, uh, to happen. And um, many of the, the major public research universities are going to start looking more and more like private universities in certain ways. Now, um, for example, at Michigan, the, the amount of state funding that goes into the University of Michigan, I think, is under 10 percent as well. I don't think we're going to be there for a long time. And, um, and, I, and it clearly is a, it's a, it's a double-edged um, situation to be in. I mean, I think we need to maintain the, the, the position we have in the state and our, um, the responsibilities we have, the obligations we have towards the, the citizens of the state but at the same time realising that there is becoming more and more of a private element about the way in which we operate as a university. Another, uh, another way that he illustrated that is I, I believe, uh, if I remember my numbers right, that IU's budget this year has about $32 million more in terms of, of money to spend um, and $31 million, maybe $31.5 million came from tuition increases. Right. And, the rest right. came from. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, one other line in the budget I would just want to ask you about it. it it's you know, relatively small, one point eight million dollars uh, to the you know to the layman. It looks big, but in that seven hundred million dollar budget, one point eight million is not that large. Um, that's the for the provost initiatives. What are, what are a couple of the provost initiatives that you're going to be spending that money on? Well, well, one of them was uh, one that we announced. Um, uh, I think it was earlier this week, which was a significant increase uh, in the salaries for uh, the staff uh, in the childcare centres at, at the university. And, and this seems on the face of it um, maybe a slightly unusual thing to be doing, but but um, with uh, with uh, so many uh, you know, married or, 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 or faculty with, with children, um, 
being able to provide um, good childcare um, becomes an important component of their conditions of work and of, of both recruitment and retention. And I think it was clear that the staff in our childcare um, facilities were were um, significantly underpaid and uh, and it was difficult to, to attract and retain the best staff there. So so th- these things are some, to some extent second order. They're not immediately obvious how important they are, but um, but with so many, with, with a, an increasingly large number of younger faculty with young children, it becomes uh, more and more important to us. And with, I think you're aware of the big demographic bulge there is in the university, and and so as that as that generation retires, mm-hmm. you're going to see a much younger faculty in this university over the next next ten years. So issues like this all of a sudden start to become. You know, they start to get on my radar screen in a way that they may not have been on the radar screen in this position in uh, you know, ten years ago, mm-hmm. as well. So that's one area. We're we're also looking at um, uh, the the kinds of things that we we will need to do in order to to be more selective um, as an institution and to increase diversity um, with within the university. So there's there's a, some money money has been been reserved um, to to assist with those initiatives as um, as Roger Thompson, the Vice Provost, um, begins to develop the, the strategic plan that he's putting, he'll be putting in place uh, in, in, in um, that area as well. Uh, some of the funding went into the K, uh, the P16, sorry, we used to call it K12, but um, Gerard always corrects me and tells me it's P16 centre that we established about a month ago, I think. And uh, um, the, the point of that centre is really to bring to bear the research of the School of Education uh, in in terms of um, helping uh, the high schools better prepare their students for Indiana University, for studying at Indiana University. And as I always say, if, if, if by doing this we can cut down on the amount of remediation we have to do at, at IU, both math and, and English, this this actually is a very good investment for us to be making. It'll, it'll free up resources in other areas ultimately and, and obviously also contribute to the, to the quality of the institution. Mm-hmm. All right. 855-0811-877-285-9348 and noon at indiana.edu. We only have about five minutes to go, so if you have a question, you better get it in quickly. You've only been on the job, as you said, for, for eight months, but uh, what do you think has been the most exciting thing that's happened so far? Oh, um, Geez, I mean, so many things I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed. Um, uh, uh, I, I think um, it has really been very rewarding, and I know I've talked about it a number of times now. It's been very rewarding to start to get some momentum behind the international component of, of what we're doing. It, um, it, I, I've been taken aback with a number of faculty who've been really enthused about that and think that this is really good and this is important, uh, really important, and they understand the importance of it. So that's that's been. Um, that's been very, very rewarding. Do you feel that you've been met with a fair amount of enthusiasm across the board? Oh, I'd leave that for others to. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, very diplomatically <laughs> answered. <laughs> I, I, He's not saying another nope, word about nope, that. I think All not. right. Um, one thing, there was an, a release last week about the uh, hiring of four new faculty members. Mm-hmm. And, and not, you know, not every new faculty hire gets a, a press release about it. What's special about these four? Well, the, the press release tried to um, – uh, I, I notice you haven't carried anything on that yet, Bob. <laughs> oh. I hope, that's, I hope that's a precursor of what you'll be doing soon. But, but uh, uh, they were, I think, four particularly distinguished faculty um, that uh, we felt it was it was worth actually highlighting the quality of the kinds of people that we were able to attract to Indiana University, um, and uh, you know, for example, Vladimir Tereyev, um is the first uh, named professor in, in our mathematics department, and he he comes with a really quite stellar reputation. He's, he's a topologist. He, he um, was trained at Russia's most prestigious um, institute of mathematics and then has been in the major French research um, institute for 15 years and is coming here as our first, as I said, named professor. And I think attracting him um, automatically is going to uh, be seen as a, a sig- significant – people sit up and take notice in mathematics departments, I think, around this country. I, I read to the trustees um, a number of uh, – uh, excerpts from references for him that were um, from very prestigious people that were really quite uh, quite remarkable, and then a number of the other faculty 
um, I, I think uh, are, are sort of standing and and uh, and will contribute um, in things like the development of the statistics. The I think the, the raising the profile of the of the uh, already um, I think quite uh, quite well known black film archive and so on as well. So that was the point. And, and frankly, this is something I would, I'm going to try and do coinciding with trustees' meetings in the future. I don't mind foreshadowing that because I really think we should we should make a point of of, of indicating um, just how good the people are that we're able to attract here, the kind of people who want to come here because they see this as a great institution. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and as a citizen, uh, I, I love hearing about that. I mean, I think that's fascinating and it really raises the... the um, just my good feelings toward the university, and yeah. I think that's an important thing to communicate to people. Yeah, when you when you ask me about what were the things that I that, that have been exciting and what have you, I, I get I, I have to approve these the, the offers of uh, tenured positions to mm-hmm. these people, and so I get these files over my desk every week, and and you get these files, and you and and they're an inch thick and a huge CV, and people with with extraordinary careers. And you read through the, the references and there's people from Harvard and Yale and Caltech and Oxford and Cambridge and, and just raving saying this person's the best in the world in this area and you're really lucky to have them. And, and, and I, I find that immensely rewarding that we, we're able to, to add people like that to, a, to an already superb faculty in the university. Well, I think the, we shouldn't uh, let this opportunity go by to, to – to, uh not mention the folks at the School of Music because I Sylvia oh, McNair and, oh, yeah. and there were there were yeah. two major faculty hires over there and I know that you have a, a special place in your heart for the School of Music. Oh, you're a big great fan. school. I I, I uh, go to concerts and performances as, as often as I can over there. I think it's a superb and magnificent school. Um, I don't I hope I'm not revealing a confidence, but David Baker is. Uh, getting an award in a couple of weeks, and I'm going to be able to um, stand up and um, and heap praise on David, who is, I think, just a real um, uh, one of the you know most luminous members of that great faculty. And will you be doing a, a duet or anything? No, 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 no. <laughs> absolutely no musical talent whatsoever. I just like it. <laughs> and, and and just I mean, you realise what a great place it is. I, we were taking a visitor, um, showing a visitor around the Mac. And and this was not staged. And we take this visitor in, and Leonard Slatkin is there rehearsing <laughs> you know, the, the the festival orchestra. And you just oh, he's Leonard Slatkin. He's just hanging around. He's yeah. always here you know, without realizing just how phenomenal this is. Yeah. Well, with that, we we are out of time. So I hope that uh, it's been six months or so since you were here, and I hope that you'll come back again in another six. Delighted months. whenever I can. Yep. All right. For Mary Catherine Carmichael, producer Catherine Hegeman, and engineer Mike Pashkash, I'm Bob Salzberg. Thanks for listening. Noon Edition is a production of WFIU and the Herald Times.